Hello and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while sometimes providing my own U.S. policy and politics angle on these different issues. This week, I'm going to talk about central bank digital currencies, better known as CBDCs which has become a topic that is increasingly prominent in the world of finance. And I'm excited to welcome Jessica Rainier, who's the Managing Director at the Digital Finance Team here at the Institute of International Finance, to this episode of Current Account. In addition to all her other duties, Jess also hosts her own podcast, which is called Finance, Regulation, and Technology, FRT, which takes deep dives into a number of digital finance topics, including CBDCs. In fact, her last show was with the executive director for the Digital Dollar Project, which is a nonprofit project here in the United States that is trying to think through the challenges and opportunities of a potential CBDC here in the United States. Anyway, thanks, Jess, for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's do the quick level set here. What exactly is a CBDC? Sure, Clay. A central bank digital currency is a sovereign currency. It is a liability of the central bank directly. Um, So today, if the central bank distributes money to a set of banks to then act as intermediaries to distribute it out into the economy for use by you or me or to other businesses, it is distributing effectively at the end of the day commercial bank money that the commercial banks then provide to individuals to use. And that is kept in ledgers, you know, in the banking system itself at that intermediary layer. The thing that's different here is the currency, again, the sovereign currency of the country is digital and directly a liability back to the central bank. And two models could exist, or at least two models could exist, but many are are discussed. One in which, again, the banks act as that intermediary layer where the central bank still provides those currencies, the, the CBDCs, to the banks to, again, distribute But in some way, they still remain. They don't change in their economic function. They are directly liable against the central bank as opposed to a liability of the commercial bank that's distributing them. Or one in which a central bank distributes the CBDCs, their sovereign currency, directly to people on the street. And and that is not the popular case right now or the most looked at case across the world, largely out of a desire not to disintermediate the banking system or for central banks really to get in the business of dealing directly with the average person on on the street because that's just not, not their business nor do they have the staffs to do that in general. But I just think about it as a a sovereign currency that if anything happens to it, the, the central bank must essentially back and pay back for for that particular currency. Okay, so that's a very important nuance and how they have different ways of distribution. Another difference that I think it would be good to hear about, I mean, there's lots of different distinctions, there's lots of technical issues, but one of the big issues is the difference between a wholesale 
CBDC and a retail CBDC. So can you explain that difference as best as you can? Yeah. And and actually, one other thing I probably should have said is, you know, today the debate really is in looking at the technology, right? Central bank digital currencies were not brought up or discussion really prior to thinking about a currency that operated on a distributed ledger kind of format or a blockchain technology. The only reason that I hesitate to explicitly attach a central bank digital currency to the technology is because there are many different models being looked at and and discussed around the world and even in pilot form. And not all of them are actually equivalently using the same technology. Um, And some are being called central bank digital currencies, but don't really appear to be what one would have thought if you were to uh, focus it around what the actual technology is that's being used. So I just wanted to, you know, it, it clearly has been a discussion as the technology has evolved and, and one would probably attach it to that because we do right now have a, a commercial bank money and, and other forms of money coming from the central bank. And they are backed by, by the government in, in many economies. But the technology really is, is kind of the root of, of where the discussion has come from. But so back to your question on wholesale versus retail, it is really important that we separate discussions of central bank digital currencies into a a wholesale context versus a retail context. Today, we have already wholesale payments and we have retail payments. This is not new. This is an existing structure. Wholesale payments exist today that are, you know, especially well suited for making very large, low frequency transactions that are oftentimes between financial institutions, central banks, things that facilitate large interbank settlements um, and other types of, again, a a wholesale function that that exists today already. This is simply taking a, a concept that exists today and using a different technology to do it, using a central bank digital currency to make it happen um, as opposed to the way it happens today. So that's one. So the second retail is a little bit easier to wrap your mind around is simply a person-to-person transaction. So say between you and me, Clay. Um, And that is at a smaller level of volume, um, one one hopes (laughs) typically, and and using different, uh, potentially different intermediaries to do so than wholesale transactions usually are through. And they have very different implications because of their different use for large flows of funds globally around the world versus kind of quick payments inside of a particular microcosm of an economy that might have a different impact on that economy. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much. Now I'm going to try to get a little more uh, controversial with you. All right, so we see statistics that nine out of 10 central banks around the world are working on doing something associated with a CBDC. So obviously, this is something that in the central banking community has become a big deal. All right, so the controversial questions are twofold. One is, what is the objective? What is a central bank? Why are they doing this? And is it really that important? I mean, we've lived a long time without this. And secondly, We at the IIF work with commercial financial institutions. It's pretty clear there is, let's call it angst, 
about this. So what are the pros and cons of a CBDC? Maybe looking at it from the perspective of the private sector as well. Yes, those pros and cons are, are certainly highly debated, I, I think, right now. I think in terms of pros and, and really where this came from, again, I, I got back to the technology. But if I were to take it one step forward from the technology, but still reach back a little bit, um, is I would look at the original creation or the attempt at creating what was to be um, or envisioned to be some form of a global stable coin called Libra. And then not only Libra, but the evolution of it then to Diem in an attempt to adjust to both regulators' views around such a potential instrument, as well as just national security responses that were quite put on alert by the idea of a consortium of many different private companies, um, not just banks, a, a large mix of types of companies coming together to try to create a global asset that would easily traverse borders, but where that consortium would be in charge of rebalancing a basket of currencies that would hold that currency at a stable value to be used that way. That's effectively, I mean, on a high level, that's effectively conducting monetary policy for, for the globe is constantly rebalancing what is the value of this currency and, and kind of managing it. So I, I go back to that because that that event um, caused a lot of angst um, by central banks and by the apparatus of, uh, of national security apparatuses in, in various countries. And the desire to maintain, I think what the, the BIS at one point had been referring to the soul of money with the central banks was very strong. And so you've seen a, a movement to say, okay, if we can use this technology or a variation of it in terms of its design to address the needs or desires or inefficiencies that something like Libra was originally imagined to achieve a, a market need in the economy, then can't we do this from the central bank standpoint as opposed to the private sector doing it? And that kind of lit off a, a fire of many, many countries now um, pursuing research and development of a central bank digital currency themselves to do that. So the you know the pros and, and cons are hotly debated. I think the the pros on one hand potentially um, some central banks argue that um, they uh, that perhaps they will um, realize some financial inclusion benefits from a central bank digital currency. However, I think that's very highly highly debated um, in a construct uh, that would not. Um, go directly to a, a retail user, but would still keep the current construct that is um, through an intermediary, distribution through an intermediary. Because the intermediary is, is where the access point and the and points of pain in the access um, point exists, as opposed to just the currency itself being the issue of inclusion. Uh, but but it is it is debated, and I think that there's more research to be 
be down there, but a, a potential pro that's that's cited. I'm sure some countries also see a pro being potential or desired for um, more control over their own monetary policy. I think it's still you know, to be seen whether that would actually result in more control over their monetary policy if they don't have the control they want today. I'm a little bit skeptical in some ways, but perhaps, you know, perhaps that could be, again, we're, we're still in a lot of uh, phases. I think that there are a lot of risks and potential downsides here, though. I think the biggest pro that is seen is, is probably... Um, again, back to the soul of money concept um, by the central banks is saying the central banks, you know, should money and that is what they see as is the largest pro. I think the, the risks and potential downsides are incredibly important. And I'd highlight those at, at just questions around potential to um, cause issues for financial stability. In terms of a, a number of things, both operational and Economic, economic specifically, questions around how a central bank digital currency could cannibalize deposits of, that are held at commercial banks. And those deposits are what the commercial banks use to make loans out to the economy. And that's what causes an economy to grow. And people then can get hired and, and consume and, and, and all that. So um, that, that's not a small question. Um, now, the question there certainly is, at what magnitude will that matter? Maybe if you keep the magnitude small enough, maybe it, it doesn't matter a whole lot. But it's still something that's certainly under question. And then under times of stress, if a central bank digital currency is a direct liability on a central bank, so perhaps perceived to be the safest possible instrument in an economy under times of stress, would that cause an economy to run to uh, a perceived flight to quality in that situation and uh, move assets out of other places, including even deposits in a bank, um, even if they were insured to a direct liability on a central bank. There are a number of other potential cons, um, questions around privacy that are, are hotly debated right now in terms of the, the degree of visibility that a central bank or government would have potentially into a retail customer's individual transactions every day and how much information would be involved there or not. And know your customer implications. You know, does a central bank really want to get into the business of doing that part of the business? Um, and if it doesn't, it still lies with the intermediary, with the commercial bank who's distributing it to know their customer, um, to do the diligence and take on the risk and liability associated with doing that and the operational risk, which means more costs in it to, to do it at the intermediary level. So lots of questions still to be you know figured out, but many countries that are working on them. So I had asked about the angst to the commercial banks. And I really liked how you kind of framed your answer, which is there was also angst from the central banks. And so there has been this kind of back and forth angst <laughs> on how to try to get there. Okay. So one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this podcast was, and this is going to be my little brain way of thinking about this, which was back in, in 2021, I thought CBDCs was kind of the, one of the biggest topics in policymaker circles. And I think it was driven in some respects in my mind again by 
China seemed to be stepping up on CBDCs. There was concern about surveillance. Are, is China going to roll this out at the winter 2022 Olympics? And then 2022 was, I think, occupied much more so by digital assets that are not CBDCs. And that's probably because of the crypto winter and what's happened there. 2023, I keep thinking the pendulum, it's probably not a pendulum, has swung back. And that's because the developments, I think, in CBDCs this year is going to be driven by Europe and the European Central Bank. And so maybe you can kind of walk us through where you think Europe is and how they are looking at this, because obviously they're, they're one of the biggest jurisdictions in the world. And if they move towards a CBDC, that is a fairly dramatic move. Yes, it, it would be a very significant move. Um, I, I'd say right now, to earn in terms of where Europe is, Europe is on its way. Obviously, it has said it has put the decision in the hands of lawmakers ultimately. And we'll have to see, you know, what legislation does in fact come out at, at the end of the day for you know those purposes. But but on the whole, um, Europe is effectively moving to create a retail central bank digital currency. They are still uh, awaiting making an official call on doing so, but all indicators suggest that Europe will move forward to create a, a digital euro um, at the retail level, and that is, that is significant. That's a very you know a very large um, economy and, and Western economy now um, doing um, doing that action. We've seen other economies, um, China, Russia, uh, India. Um, moving to create uh, retail uh, digital currencies, um, but we hadn't yet seen such a large an, uh, economy that would be a Western economy doing the same thing. And here, they th this would be significant. And I and I would say two things here that I've observed. Again, going back to um, recognizing where a retail CBDC is being driven, and recognizing where a wholesale CBDC has been driven and which area of the world seems to be pressing the reasoning for those going forward. So China began exploring a retail CBDC years ago and giving presentations um, in different um, international meetings on how they were going to construct one and, and working out the potential kinks of, of doing so. And many countries watched and I feel like more watched with interest or curiosity um, and then has proceeded to go ahead and um, and be quite advanced in, in their pilot and pursue um, pursue such a currency. That didn't cause, while it caused interest, that didn't cause the rest of the world's economies to launch a retail CBDC. Um, what we're seeing is the, the strength of the... Um, perceived certainty of the ECB that it will move forward on a retail CBDC. Again, still officially to be determined, but perceived um, certainty, it, it feels like that is driving a lot of other economies now to say, I need to create optionality for myself and get in this game um, if, in fact, an economy like Europe is going to move forward here. Because we look at just the the degree, the importance of the euro and um, flows of, of funds are around the world and trade and, and other things. And 
we look at the the relationship of Europe to other countries, um, and it just brings in a whole other set of dynamics. Um, and and so many other economies and central banks, um, while they're working on research and development of a digital currency, they are far less certain of the the case perhaps for proceeding or whether they will proceed, but very certain that they want the optionality to decide should they do so. And many of them are looking at Europe. On the wholesale front, I would say that that's very different. I think the wholesale drivers are in fact China moving forward on, you know, on, on pilots and work um, with respect to wholesale, not just China, but other countries um, in the East moving forward. And then now the West and being uh, the New York Fed working on with its um, innovation center, working on a pilot around the regulated liability network that would explore wholesale settlement systems. Um, that would be a CBDC. I think the dynamic between those, because when we talk wholesale transactions around the world, then we we talk the fundamental need of very large transactions to actually touch the U.S. dollar and go through the U.S. dollar or not um, at some point. Of course, impacts dynamics around sanctions and other national security questions around the world, and and so those are different questions there, and so. Looking at retail again versus wholesale, different countries are perceived to be driving the interest in in pursuing um, a a digital currency. And in Europe, with respect to retail, they've got a really unique kind of situation in Europe in that they have, um, in the EU is made up of a number of different countries and they have their, their own need to bring together those countries govern across them on some level while while recognizing that they are independent entities and try to create harmonization of rules, uh, regulations, and some, you know, form of potentially transactions across their countries to, you know, to act as one European Union. And this is a, a you know, trans- um, European potential payment system that I think the ECB is is looking at um, with a keen eye and, and desire to push that push that forward. Well, thank you very much. I, I only have one probably last question, which is, and and you kind of referred to it a little bit in this in your previous answer, which is well, it's really two parts. I and mean, one part is well, where do you see the United States going on all this? I mean. The United States seems like it's a step behind everyone else, although you did mention very clearly the project that the New York Fed is working on on wholesale CBDCs. The other you kind of got at, which was more a kind of a geopolitical perspective. I think maybe the more interesting question is, where do you see the United States right now? Um, so I think here is is really important that we not focus on the speed of development of something um, versus getting it right. The design of something will be essential. And in the case of a sovereign currency, um, the design and getting it right, uh, um, saying is essential is an understatement. Uh, I think a lot of times culturally, uh, people think of, um, you know, innovation. They think of uh, trying something out fast, right? Innovating fast, failing fast. 
if it didn't work, you know, move on, try the next thing and, and keep going. And that tends to be the rule of, you know, do it, do it quickly. So if you're going to fail quickly so that you can keep going again quickly. Um, in this case, this isn't just putting out a digital currency into the market and, oh, darn, it didn't work. And then we kind of move on. Right. This is the world's reserve currency, the, the U.S. dollar. Um, and even if it wasn't the world's reserve currency, it, it is a sovereign currency uh, you know, for a country. You can't afford to fail if you're the sovereign currency. It's not a an entrepreneurial kind of innovative experiment in in that way. Um, it has to be gotten right, and particularly if it's the world's reserve currency. So what the U.S. is doing, in my opinion, here is the Fed recognizes that, and so so does the the national security apparatus that has to think about. Um, you know, it, as as the reserve currency, um, you know, we need to think about the safety and soundness of just our entire ability to have a sound monetary system and the projection of power that we have in the U.S. dollar globally. And we're not going to do anything to undermine that. Um, and that would that would also undermine many other economies around the world that depend or use the dollar a lot on um, supply chain systems like uh, like trade globally they have a huge impact everywhere so I, I really don't like the um, the reaction of folks when they say the US is behind um, because I think the US is right where they want to be in in many senses perhaps you know nothing's always perfect so they're not exactly where they probably want to be um, but they certainly are closer to where they want to be than just way behind in some kind of respects. The other thing is, I think one needs to think about what are the reasons that somebody actually uses a currency or holds an asset? Um, why is the dollar the reserve currency? Right? The, it's the reserve currency because people have faith in its value and faith that when they send a transaction, it is going to get from point A to point B. Um, and faith in the U.S. legal system um, and system of governance, which is why, again, they have faith that it will maintain its value. right? Um, and, and they don't have that same kind of faith in a lot of other um, countries, uh, currencies or in their legal systems. Um, and, and so even if another country moves forward uh, with a digital currency as they are um, more quickly than the U.S., and even if it's designed perhaps well and it continues on, just designed spectacularly, um, it doesn't replace people's confidence in the legal system that governs and, and, and provides soundness for what that asset itself is. And the minute that that asset then becomes, you know, um, starts operating at that same level of technology, again, people are always going to fly and have a flight to quality, not a flight to technology. Um, so a little bit of a down a rabbit hole there, but it drives, it actually kind of drives me nuts when people say um, that, the, that the U.S. is just like way behind in any, in any sense. Um, I think what's important here is that the U.S. is, you know, I mentioned pursuing this wholesale pilot, um, again, as a reserve currency, making large transactions all over the world. That makes sense, right? That That's where what U.S. dollars are doing in large quantities around the world. And so that's naturally going to be the first thing that they move on. And then second, on the retail side, um, I see, you know, a lot of good questions being asked, but 
considerably more hesitancy and uncertainty about actually being sold on the idea of a retail CBDC than um, other other countries feel um, perhaps, you know, certainly relative to the uh, certainty with which Europe seems to be um, moving forward right now. Um, the U.S. is not there um, and is still, you know, still doing research, working out those questions, um, weighing the pros and cons, um, and I think considerably less um, certain, particularly with respect to questions uh, around, uh, realistically, the financial inclusion um, benefits um, or not that may come if, if the intermediary layer is, is not to change. And, uh, and the U.S. doesn't have the same, um, you know, the, the same geopolitical questions. It has geopolitical questions, but very different geopolitical questions um, because it does not have a series of countries that it is working internally to bring together as one union. The U.S. already governs itself that, that way. So different challenges. I think, you know, on the whole, there are geopolitical considerations by different countries. There are basic infrastructure considerations by different countries. If a country has very advanced infrastructure that is successfully um, transmitting lots of payments in different places. Um, it's perhaps less, um, you know, less convinced um, or has less immediacy of need to change that infrastructure um, for something versus another country that might be able to leapfrogging technology and, and pursue something here. And then again, just the projection of power and the role that an economy holds in the world. Is, is going to influence its desire or reasons, motivations for considering moving forward. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jess. Um, so actually, let me just say, I just want to thank you very much for joining me, taking the time and trying to explain this extremely complicated issue in a way, hopefully, that most people understand. So thank you again, Jessica Rainier. Thanks for having me, Clay. Now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways from today's program, two things I'm looking forward to related to this program, and my one sports fact. The three takeaways from my conversation with Jessica are first, while most central banks around the world are researching CBDCs, the range of activities varies from many doing early research to some launching advanced pilots and to some even actually having a live currency. Next, it is important to evaluate wholesale CBDCs and retail CBDCs separately. They have different uses, different implications for the financial system, and different complications associated with them. And third is the CBDC, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about it this year because of what's happening in Europe. But I thought that Jess made a really good point at the end, which is that Europe may be going forward, and that might be the right thing for Europe, though there's going to be controversies around that. While the United States is not yet in that position, and that's not necessarily a good nor a bad thing about the United States, it's just a different thing. And so I think that that's an important aspect because all of these are going at different speeds. The two things I'm looking forward to, one is on the wholesale side of CBDCs. What we learn from the Regulated Liability Network, which is a proof-of-concept 12-week pilot that is being conducted in the United States by the New York Fed. Now, it's going to be pretty technical, but it is going to be interesting to see how does this work? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What 
new things need to happen. And second, on the retail side, the completion of the ECBs for the European Central Bank's investigative phase of its digital euro project and the determination this fall as to whether and how to proceed with a digital euro. And finally, my one sports fact. This podcast will be released with less than a week to go before the Super Bowl, which is by far the biggest sporting event in the United States every year. And in fact, I'm going to be sad because I'll miss it because I'll be on an airplane. But this year's battle will be between the Philadelphia Eagles, who have risen up quickly and surprisingly behind the legs and arms of their very young quarterback, Jalen Hurts, versus the Kansas City Chiefs, who are in their third Super Bowl in four years and are led by Patrick Mahomes, who is only 27 years old, but has already thrown more touchdowns in his playoff career than any other quarterback in the history of the playoffs, except for one person. And that one person is Tom Brady, who this week announced his retirement from football at the age of 45, which, by the way, is considered ancient for professional football. He has won seven Super Bowls and holds almost every passing record that there is. But the wildest statistic I can think of is that he has more playoff victories himself than all but four franchises in the history of the NFL. Many of these franchises have been around for 60 to 100 years. So a lot of people call him the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And that again reminds me that it's tough to watch folks who are considered either the greatest of their sport or one of the greatest walk off the stage, whether it's Tom Brady, Serena Williams in tennis, Roger Federer in tennis, or Tiger Woods in golf. And my guess soon, LeBron James in basketball and Rafael Nadal in tennis as well. And that's why it makes it all the more special to see younger individuals who might also be the GOATs, such as Michaela Schifrin in women's alpine skiing, or those that maybe are sealing up their legacy, like we saw last year in the World Cup with Lionel Messi in soccer. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. Make sure to tune in on Monday for our next episode. That and all of our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.